This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Operation Barbecue, and the author is Gary Evanoff, and Gary joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gary. Hello, Steve. Hello, everybody. Well, this is a police crime thriller, as you call it. Give us an overview about Operation Barbecue, and then tell us why you wrote it. Well, ultimately, um, uh, the story begins uh, around 1979, Chicago, and um, Hunter is uh, uh, gets involved with some shady characters uh, and um, some drug drug dealing and uh, a little bit of fumbling around, you know, and then um, ends up with a mysterious death in the beginning of the book, and um, ends up having to leave town real quick. And uh, so uh, through his journey, he ends up in Denver, and um, through a couple of circumstances, he uh, picks up a job uh, in a uh, topless nightclub, and um, uh, there's some some shady characters following him around because he owes some money back in Chicago still. And so um, he ends up taking on this job and getting sort of tied tied to these shady characters in this way, and then out through working and paying them off, and then um, falls in with the, with the crowd, and, uh, and then it basically goes through um, a, a pretty interesting um, scenarios with the um, with the dance club, you know, the uh, the girls and and all. It's pretty entertaining, and uh, um, then also ultimately um, gets on the bad side of one of the one of the um, kind of underground owners of this situation that's involved in some pretty heavy dealings with the cocaine trade. And so um, uh, he ends up with some death threats and finds out that there's a um, uh, police operation um, actually has these people already set up. And through the threats to him, he ends up having to help the FBI to um, bring this uh, bring their operation to an end. And, um, you know, through the whole thing, it's pretty funny. And it's also, there's, there's quite a bit of, they shoot them up and um, uh, entertainment, you know, throughout the whole thing. And uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. It starts in Chicago, it ends up going out west to Denver, and then ends up back in Chicago and Wrigley Field, <laughs> you know. Um, sort of a, uh, you know, uh, the story ends, but then, you know, the second book I'm writing to follow up Hunter sort of takes back up in Chicago, you know. What's your fascination with this kind of a story? Why did you write it? You know, ultimately, um, I, uh, I've taken quite a bit of it from some travels of my own, you know what I mean? And so I used uh, quite a bit of my own experiences to create the character. And then I just like the excitement of it. And there's a couple of, uh, I, I kind of love dogs, you know, so I put a couple of cute dogs in there. And... Um, just some just entertainment and, um, you know, the, the bumbling um, guy that really doesn't have a clue of what he's going to do ends up 
you know, um, you know, say he drinks too much and he smokes and all that, and the very end he ends up on the side of the good guys, if you will, you know. And um, yeah, it's it's really just a just an interesting and fun tale, you know. Well, is Hunter the kind of guy that we really like, even though he's involved in some pretty shady things? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, um, you know, he's not as much involved in the shady things as more of a lifestyle that's not necessarily um, that appealing to, you know, the average person that gets up and, and works real hard every day and goes and comes home and, you know, takes care of business. He's kind of a young, bumbling fool to a certain degree. He's still not a dishonest or a violent person, you know. And um, yeah, he's not the murderer type or the hitman type. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite, actually. And um, he's just, you know, surrounded by. Uh, uh, he gets involved, um, sort of unwittingly, you know, in these situations, and that has to get out of him. You know, he's he's real. He has that dumb look in the beginning. You know, and uh, like uh, sometimes when you're young, you know, you're just flying on down that river, you know, and you, you're just getting lucky that you don't capsize and drown. You, somehow you get through it, and then eventually it catches up to you, and you have to actually, uh, you know, stop what you're doing and get it together and, and start over, you know, and uh, clean your act up. He's 19 years old, and the police are after him, right? Right, exactly, yeah, and some gangsters from Chicago. I guess he owes a lot of money. He owed a pretty good handful of cash to a uh, to a character at the beginning of the book that ends up dying. Um, and uh, not to give away too much of it, you know, he was involved with this character, and instead of selling drugs for the guy, he was taking them himself and having a good time. You know, he wasn't actually a drug dealer; he was just a fool. You know, <laughs> so. He ended up in the bag with them, and uh, when he was gone, they still wanted their money because he owed them money. He owed the, he owed the big guys money. And then when uh, the, the Richie dies, um, he still has to pay. He thought he was off the hook, but turns out the police want to know what's going on, and the bad guys want him because they want their money. Who are some of the characters surrounding him that support him, that are allies, friends to Hunter? Well, um, you know, in the beginning, um, he hooks up with his dad and his dad's new wife in Colorado, a bunch of fun people that are in a bar that his uh, folks out there own, and it's uh, just a lot of fun about their, the way they live and um, some good people, and then he ends up in this um, strip club type of environment as a disc jockey. He just fumbles and fakes his way into his job, and then the uh, girls are all really entertaining and, um, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, episodes, you know, sort of through the girls' lives and, you know, the life in that type of uh, atmosphere, if you will. And, uh, it, you know, it ends up being pretty funny and and uh, pretty, it, pretty ex a lot of excitement as well. You know, there's, um, uh, he ends up with a girlfriend that um, is pretty interesting and, then the other club owners, he befriends, uh, they befriend him, I should say, and one of them's from the Chicago area, so they have a tie there, and it goes on from there, you know, to where they uh, just continue this uh, entertaining relationship. So who's the henchman with the mob that's after him? Well, Frankie um, uh, from Chicago, he's like a, 
you know, the mob is the mob, you know, but they're not all necessarily, you know, it's a job for them, you know. But um, Frankie is sort of an, uh, a fool amongst the mob, and um, he's like a, uh, a, 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 a screw-up sort of, if you will, with the mob, and um, he sort of ends up being a an outcast and, and uh, ends up on the in the drug dealing and the uh, shadier side of the shady side. <laughs> and so um, he's the one in the end that really has it out for him because he gets in on, he, he had it he had it all set up to where he was going to take over this club in Denver that um, through some circumstances, Hunter and assistant manager's job that Frankie was going to take to move this big drug score that he makes. So when he ends up getting, Hunter ends up getting his job, and Frankie takes it personal, and that's where the, um, uh, you know, the excitement sort of takes off. He, has, he wants to get rid of Hunter so he can resume his plans to move all these drugs that he picked up. Are there people involved that uh, on the surface seem to be the upstanding citizens but are involved heavily in this drug trade? Uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there is, um, and, uh, one of the guys that actually operates the club, um, one of them, there's partners in the Denver, in the Denver club, and one of them, who ends up actually getting, uh, terminated, ultimately, he, he's befriended by this, the, one of the main characters that owns the nightclub that he gets hired into, and one of them is actually working with these other bad guys, um, and knows all about the drug dealings and and all the other um, underground stuff, and uh, but has never told Hunter about any of this. And then he ends up being terminated in the book, and then that's how it comes out. Um, without once again trying to give too much away, it's pretty exciting. It takes place and it goes out to Las Vegas, and there's all kinds of neat um, twists and turns to it, you know. And uh, then, um, you know, it's, he's just like, man, he's been standing right in the way without even knowing it, you know. So. Now, are there any police, uh, main characters in the pol- with the police that are involved? Uh, yeah, there's, there's actually quite a few. Um, but, you know, you've, in, the, in the police, we've got good guys and bad guys as well. Um, uh, you know, and like the police department in Denver are pretty much... Uh, a handful of straight shooters, um, and, uh, uh, you know, working along, they know about the FBI thing, and uh, the FBI guys are all, you know, straight up, they're just doing their job sort of thing. And um, uh, then, uh, you know, of course, then back in Chicago, on the other hand, they've got um, this one character that they, it's sort of subplots to explaining about the other, you know, the, the, um, the uh, gangster guys in Chicago, how they end up getting some of their power through working with this crooked cop uh, who ends up uh, meeting a uh, his demise as well. And not to say that all coppers in that area are bad. It's just this one and a couple of others. Uh, there's some there's some uh, uh, politics as well. It's uh, actually pretty Chicago style politics. <laughs> But I made it up, that part. <laughs> you know, it's all fabricated, so I don't want anybody to get mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chicago has its own reputation. I don't think you could tarnish it. 
Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> I just borrowed from a situation from years ago. It's uh, actually a, uh, a shakedown situation that was in the newspaper. And um, I, I, I sort of changed it around, you know, and made it. Uh, it's 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 actually true, but I don't name anybody. There's nobody to be named or anything. It's just a a, a way of extortion that actually was used, and I highly doubt they use this type of extortion anymore these days in Chicago. But you know, this is back in the '80s, the early '80s. It was still happening right around the Graylord trials, where all this blew up on all the bad guys in the city. And they had to change things around. Uh, you know, they cleaned the city up pretty well back then. You say the reader will really like the main character, Hunter Nielsen, for his survival skills. Now, he must get in some very tough places, tight places, but is able to get out. Yeah, he does. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily things that he's just sort of, sort of, um, dumb, uh, sort of, uh, fits himself into these maneuvers. It's not like he's trying to be, uh, covert or uh, criminal or anything like that, you know, he's just, you know, he actually ends up in a situation in one case where he's gets one of the, uh, a person's job at one of these nightclubs, either they doesn't like it, and ends up, uh, you know, doing the old blanket job on him out behind the club, and he gets banged up real bad, and uh, he ends up in the hospital and all that, and uh, has to come back from that. And then, um, you know, that Frankie, he's a pretty mean character, and uh, he gives him a going around, too. Um, so, you know, you don't have Hunter Nielsen going around starting any fights, but um, he seems to get in there. It's almost like a James Garner thing, in a way, you know, from way back in the old, you know, 70s movies. Uh, but he's not, he's not like an aggressive um, uh, walking around with his chest all puffed out like he's a big, tough guy, you know, but... Uh, he managed to get in and out of some hairy situations. What sets your thriller apart from the rest that may have a similar uh, plot line? Ultimately, the movement of the story, maybe the setting as being set back in the 70s, the late 70s, early 80s, compared to, you know, m- m- books that would come out now. Um, you know, it kind of has a lot of that, um, uh, that era and uh, factual-based um, sort of history from that time. And uh, then sort of the, in the end, the dimensions of Chicago, you don't really get that much Chicago in, in novels that, I don't, that I've read, and I've read quite a few. I think that um, the uh, depiction of the city is, is pretty well done, and uh, you sort of get an idea that you're there and what it's like. It's really a great city. Just the, the way people are, uh, there's a lot of reality in the way the characters carry themselves. So I don't know how, how different it would be, except for um, Hunter isn't a righteous cat, you know, that's out to uh, bring down the mob. He's forced into this situation and maintains a friendship with the remaining characters in the end. It's not like he becomes all righteous and joins the FBI, you know what I mean? He ends up still himself, but he's a lot more educated. Well, you even call it less polished and raw, evoking a sense of gritty reality. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate, actually. You know, it's not all polished up and uh, 
uh, it's an adult book, I have to say. It's, you know, not really for children, you know what I mean? Um, and there's no, there's no, the women aren't made out to be trashy at, at all, even though it uh, takes place a lot of it in strip clubs. The women are in no way made out to be, you know, um, sleazy or trashy and uh, just more like they really are. You know, I did work the, that type of um, atmosphere for quite a while. And people have, uh, at least back in them days, a, weird, a misconception of how women are. You know, they're not all hookers and, and all that. You know, they're actually just people working. And, and they, they're really strong women that aren't all, they're not necessarily all victims, you know. I, I think there's just, uh, it's a lot of in-your-face, this-is-the-way-it-is type stuff without, without being all prettied up, you know. Well, Gary, tell us how to get your book. Well, ultimately now, um, you can go uh, online, go to iUniverse, and, and punch in Operation Barbecue, and iUniverse will be more than happy to send you one. Um, and then also, I've been picked up by Amazon.com, so you can get it through Amazon as well, with the same reference to um, Operation Barbecue. If you go to also to www.huntermielsennovel.com. You'll have our website, and um, that will give you my personal email address if you want to purchase a copy with a signature. And my sister, Lorraine Evanoff, has just been, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been able to get this far because she really pushed me to finish, and she really helped me with editing and uh, getting through the iUniverse process, and she's just all around, um, you know, a real positive influence. So her email is on there as well. But if you contact either one of us through that, we can send you a signed copy as well. So those are ways, the best ways to get it. Plus, I'm hoping I'll do some uh, book signings near people, and they might want to come out and, and get one that way. Well, Gary, uh, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. We really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate the call, Steve, and um, I can't wait to hear uh, hear how this goes, and it's pretty exciting. I really appreciate the call. I hope everybody likes this book. I really think they will. That was Gary Evanoff. He is the author of his book, Operation Barbecue. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. 
Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pink Slips and Parting Gifts, and the author is Deb Hosey-White, and Deb joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Deb. Hi, how are you today? Good to have you on the show now. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts, this is what you wrote about it, a short overview. You said, mergers and acquisitions have a real human impact. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts is a business novel that takes place at the beginning of the 21st century. It is set inside a Fortune 500 corporation that has been auctioned and sold to a competing company. This is a work of fiction that reflects the economic times of a nation. Then you go on to say one in five corporate employees can testify to the real impact of mergers and acquisitions. Mergers are messy business and they change the lives of everyday people. Everyday people, however, don't headline the merger and acquisition news. So this is real focused, I guess, on the emotional roller coaster that often can accompany these kinds of events, right? That's correct. What happens to the people who aren't making the news that are involved in a merger but are certainly uh, are affected by it? Uh, in their everyday lives. So why did you write the book? And first, before you go into that, tell us a little bit about your background. I think that would be interesting to our listeners. Well, I have more than 30 years in human resources and in uh, business management consulting and also in coaching. And so I've had an opportunity over my career to uh, experience the business world from a lot of different perspectives through witnessing uh, many, many stories and events in my career, it's just such wonderful, interesting stories that I felt like I wanted to share those. So we look at different scenarios, different events, or is it more of a a novel about uh, main characters and the corporate world? It is a novel about the corporate world, But there are over 75 characters in the book that we follow. Uh, Some of them make an appearance for less than a page. Some are there at the beginning. Some are there still at the end. Uh, It's all in the process of still telling the story about the event and then meeting many of the people that are affected by this event, the merger of two large corporations. Now, right at the start of the book, you mentioned about the impact of the game of Monopoly on the corporate world. Give us your view of that. Well, it's a a thought that crossed my mind as I was starting to write this story. And I was thinking about, you know, 
what is it that motivates a CEO to decide to sell a corporation that's been around for a long time, that might be a household name, that's doing well, that employs lots of thousands of people? What is it? What's that magic moment that, that comes along that makes a CEO say, I think it's time to sell the company? And in thinking about that, it struck me that there isn't this monopoly mentality that we have in the United States, maybe in the world, that uh, we, as children, play this game. And then, interestingly enough, we have a lot of people in the business world who've grown up and are playing it as adults. Now, we're going to look at the Easton Company, correct? That's correct. And this is a fictitious company. It's a developer. It is a Fortune 500 company in the U.S., and it is merging, actually being acquired by one of its competitors, Pratt Miles. And across the street, there's also a social place that plays a big part in the people's lives who work at Easton's? That's correct. And that's where some of my favorite scenes in the book take place. Uh, on this very last day that the Easton Company exists before it disappears, from the big board on Wall Street, and is acquired by its competitor. And those scenes that are my favorites really revolve around the party that's going on at the bar across the street from Easton's corporate headquarters. Very last day that the company exists, uh, it's a Friday, rainy Friday afternoon. This, the deal is finally sealed. The company is sold. And we have uh, Easton company employees who migrate across the street to the aptly named Darwin's Bar for a final Easton Company blowout. Readers follow several characters in and out of Darwin's during this 10-hour party that's going on. And first we meet Rob and Cindy, who are a married couple. They're both employed as accountants for Easton. And on this last day, when the sale closes, Cindy gets her pink slip, she gets emotional, and then she gets drunk. And her after-hours final visit to the empty Easton headquarters building is both touching and amusing as she recalls some very important events in her life that take place there. Later in the evening, a group of employees exiting Darwin's watches in disbelief as the Easton Company's sign is ripped from the ground by a crane and dropped as though it's just scrap metal into a dump truck just hours after the deal is finalized. And at closing time at Darwin's, we go back inside and meet the anonymously generous individual who's arranged to pick up the $2,300 bar tab for this last great Easton Company bash. And then finally, on this day, we follow another group of employees leaving the bar as they head for a small ceremony that is really of their own making at the grave site of Ed Easton, who is the Easton Company's much-admired late founder. Those are scenes that I really love, and I love the characters that, that uh, populate those scenes. When you describe your book, you ask the question, uh, what's your book about? And you say it's a business workplace novel about the merger of two corporations. And then 
a answer to that statement sounds awful boring to me. <laughs> Give us some insights on how this is much more than just the mechanics and the history of two companies merging. You're really talking about what's happening to people. That's correct. This is definitely a peek behind the curtain, uh, not the stuff that you're reading about on the business page of the New York Times. And so when I, when I jokingly s- said uh, in, in that description of sounds pretty boring, you know, when you say to somebody, it's, my book is a work of business workplace fiction, it may not sound terribly entertaining. However, I have to tell you, I've been told that Pink Slips and Parting Gifts has inspired some readers to drop the book laughing and others to throw the book across the room in anger while shouting some choice words. So, obviously the story's inspired uh, a lot of questions and strong responses from readers. And in all honesty, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, we really are looking at characters who are unique, but then that's what life is made up of. Very unique people who are reacting to learning that their careers, their jobs, their years of dedication to a particular company uh, are about to go away. And I find that uh, something very interesting to talk about and explore in the book and uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's poignant and at the same time can be very entertaining. I guess it's something for everyone to think about because given the economic times we're in, may help us to work through that day when we get the pink slip. Well, I'd hope so. But I also would say I'd hope that uh, uh, not only am I finding readers who are uh, identifying with the employees who are uh, are not the decision makers in these mergers, but in some cases that I'm finding readers who are at the top of the food chain, if you will, in these corporations, and who maybe will think a little bit more about effects of the decision of merger on their employee populations. Not that it would change the decision to merge, but the the decisions about packages and benefits and uh, notification, all those things, that all of this, there, there are good and bad ways to handle uh, these human resources issues that come about, and we could do a better job. We certainly spend most of our lives working for one company. Of course, that doesn't happen as much as it used to, but we certainly spend so much time and we get emotionally tied to what we do. So it is a major disruption. It can be. It definitely can be. And, you know, we, we really, interestingly enough, you know, we spend so much of our lives in the workplace as Americans, and yet there is not a lot of workplace fiction out there. There certainly is some, uh, you know, a decade ago we saw novels with Silicon Valley and dot-com settings, and there's always been plenty of government intrigue fiction set in federal offices in and around the nation's capital. And there's other exceptions like Arthur Haley's hotel and airport novels that some uh, listeners may remember. Uh, more recently, Weisberger's The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, but I think that it is unique to have a book that is 
really set in the workplace and about what's really going on with the people who populate uh, this corporation during uh, a merger in progress. Your book must be very unique. I can't imagine many books written from this point of view. So I've been told. Um, I've had a couple of people who have been very surprised that someone who spent a career in human resources would be interested in uh, writing a book. And my response is, uh, gosh, you know, sometimes we have some of the best stories uh, over a career in human resources. And certainly that's also a motivation to uh, indulge in creative writing uh, is the opportunity to, to share some of these, these stories that are sometimes uh, just stranger than fiction and, and too good to be true. Very few books would have a title about Tales of the Sofa. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to tell you, uh, as the book has now been in the marketplace for a bit, it, Tales of the Sofa is uh, a favorite part uh, of the book for all kinds of readers. And uh, it's, it's certainly uh, unique. We, uh, we follow a sofa that starts out as a gift from the, the founder of the Easton Company uh, to the new CEO. Uh, we follow that post-merger uh, as it's discovered in the empty executive suite of the former Easton Company headquarters, and it travels from place to place throughout the building. Uh, the sofa has its own story to tell, I think, uh, about each of its temporary caretakers as it relocates from the CEO's office to human resources to a couple of guys in the IT group and then the maintenance staff break room. And then finally, it lands on the loading dock behind the building, adopted by uh, a man named Don, don't call me Miami Vice Johnson, who is a local homeless man. So, yes, and I, I, I've gotten emails from readers who've asked me if the sofa is a metaphor for the post-merger dismantling of, of the Easton Company in the story, and I've replied that if the reader says it's a metaphor, well, then it's a metaphor. But in reality, sometimes a sofa is just a sofa. It must have been very challenging weaving these 75 characters throughout this story were, were other great challenges? I think uh, the most challenging part of writing the book was developing the format for telling the stories I wanted to tell. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts does unfold through a series of vignettes, and the reader moves around the plot and becomes a spectator of the action from many different viewpoints. And that being said, uh, assuring that the reader could follow the storyline uh, effectively was a challenge, and it required quite a lot of editorial skill. Deb, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available from iUniverse, and also online. Uh, it's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Deb Hosey-White. She is the author of her book, Pink Slips and Parting Gifts.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling. But because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Quigley Alchemy, and the author is E.J. Russ McDevitt. And Russ joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Russ. Hey, uh, hi. Uh, hi from Canada. Beautiful weather up here. And nice talking to you, especially about my book. Well, good to have you on the show. Now, tell us in, in an overview, what is your book about? Uh, ostensibly, it's an action novel. Um, the hero, the top guy in it, is a, an ex-Special Forces guy in the SAS, that's the Special Air Service in the U.K. It would be the equivalent of your Delta teams over here, or your SEALs. And uh, he's pretty well forced, told by his wife, to get out of the forces because he got left behind in, in Afghanistan on, on a mission, and a week later emerges, and uh, he was lost in, in action. As far as their wife was concerned, he was gone. So when he came back to the U.K., she said, that's it. So he gets out, finds it difficult to <laughs> get work. After all, this guy's a focused killing machine, and eventually uh, is offered a position selling life insurance. You can believe that. Kind of ironic, yes. <laughs> yeah, ironic. And uh, I think Chapter 12 starts by saying uh, Danny realizes he has to learn how to sell life insurance or go back to killing people. So I think that focuses the mind wonderfully. Anyway, Steve, it isn't working out for him. Um, it isn't working out for him. He's struggling. And he hears about this girl, C.C. Clive Courtney, a guy who made a lot of money in the business and who disappeared. He decides he'd go and find this guy and pick his brains and learn his secrets. So... That's what he does. Do you want me to keep going on this, Wayne? No, that gives us a little bit of a feel for uh, what's going on here. Uh, obviously, a lot of turmoil within Danny, a lot of struggles. Uh, tell us why you wrote the book. Uh, this is a, a very unique kind of uh, plot. Yeah, it is. Um, some years ago, I was uh, training financial services in the U.K. I spent a lot of time in it. 
after I got out of the military. I was in the Canadian military for six years, part of NATO brigade in Europe. And uh, while I was training in the UK, I met this ex-SAS guy who came into my class. And uh, him and I were together for two weeks there. He struggled a lot. Uh, I studied him. Uh, violence kind of exuded from his skin, almost like sweat. And uh, I thought he could have jumped across the table many a time and tore my throat out. And you could say Danny Quigley, my, my hero, the hero in my book, was born right then because this guy was incredible. No, no post-traumatic stress counseling. He was a guy trying to get into financial services and failing miserably. I helped him all I could, so I understood his mindset and uh, where he was coming from. And because I was ex-military, he kind of unloaded on me, told me a lot of the stories of the actions, projects that were involved in. And you could say that uh, the character stayed in my mind right then. And later on, when I was writing the book, it just had to be about this individual. Now, you have a special dedication for your book. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's to NADA. Now, NADA might ring a bell with your listeners, but uh, two months ago, I was watching the demonstrations in Tehran, and uh, I was shocked to see this young, beautiful young lady shot dead by a sniper right there on TV. She was out strolling with her father, not even involved in these demonstrations, and was shot, I think 26 years of age, lying there in the street, dying, and her father on his knees beside her. And I just had this incredible sense of shock and a sense of responsibility just sitting in there. I said, what can I do to kind of make sure she's not forgotten? And I immediately got up, went to my computer, and dedicated the book to her. And I should say, I took my wife's name and my daughter's name off because they had helped me do a lot of editing in the book. And uh, that's where it began. And I was amazed yesterday on CNN to see that Oxford University in England have set up a scholarship in honor of NADA. So there is, there's something catching here. There's something happening. And the Iranian government have condemned uh, Oxford University. I hope they condemn my book, too. It'll make it famous. But if she stayed with me, I can tell you, on that, on that night, I, in some way, you'd have to be Irish to understand it, but she really got through to me. I had this sense of, of, of her essence passing into me or something. I can't explain it, but I was determined to do something, and that's all I could do. That's all I could think of was to dedicate the book. And I'm delighted I did, and it looks great on the book. Well, let's talk about how the book starts. Uh, what is the timeline? What's the event? Or what's going on in Danny's life? Yeah, okay. It starts with um, a joint uh, SAS-Delta mission in Afghanistan. Quite often these guys do t joint operations. Um, they're going out to this village to... Uh, they've got a hint that the village elder will, will talk to them and uh, start working with them. So a joint SAS-Delta team go out there and get ambushed. And when the teams pull out, Danny is inadvertently left behind. He's kind of covering their butts. And uh, he managed manages to get undercover and creep off. Scientists are heading back and uh, runs into all sorts of trouble, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and is actually housed by a young 17-year-old Afghan girl uh, who shoots somebody who is about to take his head off with a rifle. So he emerges about a week later, um, having killed all sorts of people and all sorts of adventures with this young 17-year-old Afghan girl. When he ends up back in the U.K., his wife says, look, that's it, baby. Uh, you're going to have to get out of the forces. And his young daughter said, Daddy, don't leave me again, please. So that probably touched them more than anything else. So 
they had a big discussion. He didn't like getting out. He was good at what he did. He was heading up. His buddies loved him, and, um, you know, he'd been doing it for about eight years. But he got out, and this is where he went into the business of trying to sell life insurance. However, having uh, got into Civvy Street, he thought violence was behind him, but when he goes looking for this guru who's supposed to teach him how to sell life insurance, uh, some uh, British intelligence people from MI5 want him back in to do another killing for them because he's done it before. Uh, the MI5 used to tap the SAS, do certain jobs off the radar for them. So they wanted Danny back because he was supposed to be or was the best of the best. So while he's trying to um, find a new trade, uh, British intelligence are trying to haul him back in and grab his family and everything else until on one morning he's sitting there in this room looking out at the target with a sniper rifle in his hands and uh, uh, people with their pistols pointed to an individual, a lady behind him whom he happens to love. Uh, so uh, I've kind of put that in the back cover to make people realize that there is a, an end game here in this, and it's not selling life insurance. Of course, he determines uh, life insurance is almost impossible, I guess, for a man who thinks the way he thinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Actually, the secondary character in the book, a guy called C.C. Courtney, whom uh, the locals say, and this is, this is where the plot has moved to Ireland, Sligo in Ireland, a uh, beautiful part of the country. That, uh, William Butler Yeats came from there, and there's all sorts of beautiful scenery. So this guy, the secondary character in the book, uh, who looks like Liam, Liam Neeson, apparently, according to the locals, he's trying to uh, deprogram Danny from the violence and get him to kind of shed the violence as it, as it is from his life, and he's struggling a little bit. And at the same time, these British intelligence guys are coming along. So the question is, will he deprogram him too soon, or can he still operate as a special forces guy? Well, it sounds like somewhere in the book he goes back to doing one more, uh, what would you call it, one more mission, right? One more mission, yeah. <laughs> They, uh, this guy, C.C. They probably make it, uh, like, impossible to turn down. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. There's a nice, there's a nice, it's a pretty fast pace. It eases down here and there, but that's good. Um, the locations change between England and Ireland. And there's a little map in the front there to help people figure out where they are. And um, I think it's quite an unusual book, actually. I mean, the, the, the different layers in there make it, and the location, of course, make it quite an unusual book. I, I have a strange feeling it's going to go all the way, actually. That's just me. <laughs> Maybe it's my Irish psychic nature. I'm kind of prophesying that. Well, it must have been a, a great challenge to do all the research behind, especially the, the weapons and also this special forces mindset. Yeah, the, I know the, the, the weapons are a big thing because, you know, people reading this, some of them are special forces gurus and weapons gurus, and they can take a hold in what you're doing right away. So I spent a lot of time on that. I think I've got it pretty right. The mindset of special forces, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that I, I really appreciate the sacrifice that your military guys do and people up in Canada. And, and I'll never forget how what a wonderful job they do and their families waiting at home. But special forces go even a little further because they're called out at a moment's notice. There's no standard... Uh, postings that could be anywhere in the world and they're not allowed to tell their families when they come home they can't tell them where they've been and and uh, 
they actually set up their mates, their buddies become a second family, actually. And that's the big problem. Most of them end up divorced. The real family is in special forces. They come home on the weekend and they can't wait to get back to the action, the adrenal fix, their buddies and so on. So it, it, it's tough being special forces. I think I really got into their mindset. I really did. And, and also, you had some uh, very uh, violent, unarmed cam- combat sequences. Yeah, well, when I was when I was a young man, I, I traveled around Australia in a, in a boxing and wrestling troupe for nearly three years, taking on all comers. I was a middleweight on, on, on the lineup board. There was no heavyweight, so I had to fight everybody, heavyweights and everybody. And I did that for three years, and... and uh, um, I lived and breathed and tasted. Now I got out of there, went up to Canada, and the recruiting sergeant looked at me and listened to my story and said, "How oh, we need you in the military police." So for the next six years, I was clearing out bars of drunken Canadians. <laughs> oh, gee. They weren't all drunken Canadians; they were great guys. But I'm just saying that in the military police in Canada, you don't carry a club, you don't carry a weapon, uh, so you have to be trained in unarmed combat. And uh, when we were in Germany, we'd come up to a, a, a bar where there was problems, and the American military police would be there with their forty fives and clubs and handcuffs, and we'd kind of stroll up with their hands in our pockets and say, well, come on, guys, we'll just stroll in. And we'd stroll into these drunken Canadians and kick their butts and talk to them, and quite often they'd just walk out of there, you know, because they knew we were pretty mean, mean guys when we got stirred up. So, yeah. I've got put it behind me, but uh, I was pretty good at the hard stuff myself. Not anymore. I just write about it now. Very realistically. <laughs> yeah, very realistically. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now well, tell if us I, if I could last one minute, I could sure. do a lot of damage. You'll listen to it that way. <laughs> tell us about neuro linguistic programming (NLP), as it's called. NLP. You know, it's it's it's, uh, it's a facet of psychology, if you like, and. Um, it's, it's kind of how the, how, how the brain works and how you code experiences and how you can extract that experience again. But in the book, in the book, C.C. Um, Courtney, the number two character, uses NLP techniques to help Danny actually get rid of the violence in his life. And Danny said, well, hell, I've been in special forces. Loads of violence. He said, no, it's not that. The violence comes from you, back in you, sometime in your past. And it's true, Danny had a bad time with his stepfather and got beaten up, and his mother got beaten up. And really, that's when a spurt of violence came into him. You know, he, he just used the military as a vehicle to express his violence. So C.C. Uh, Courtney used NLP to help Danny go back and kind of, if you like, get rid of that stuff and, and change him. Uh, it's very powerful stuff, actually. I, use it, I used to use it when I did some coaching with people who had baggage in their lives we all have it but some of it needs to get rid of you know in this courtney's uh clive courtney is known as cc he uh has some other successes that are characters in, in your book as well yeah there's a beautiful irish nurse there that kind of i mean danny's in the process of divorce because he his wife says get out or else so he gets out and she divorces him anyway and um, and he meets this beguiling irish nurse that he kind of falls for She's the one sitting in the chair kind of on the fatal morning with a couple of weapons on her head, and he's got to shoot this, uh, his target, or she gets it. Um, so, yeah, he's one of the characters he runs into. He's also uh, got a buddy in the, in the regiment. This is Danny Quigley, 
called Scotty, who's a short, whipcord guy like a lot of special forces, and uh, he's got a bullet head that he uses with devastating effect. Uh, so he's in there too. Another character is the uh, Director General of MI5, who's a lady, uh, Rebecca Fullerton Smiles, and she's quite a character in her own right, and she's right with them, right at the end, when they're coming up against this uh, kind of rogue MI5 agent. She's right there with a shotgun, right with them, shoulder to shoulder, when it comes down to the wire, and she's, she's quite a lady, actually. Well, does he ever sell life insurance? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> Actually, I, I've already written the sequel to it, and you start selling life insurance <laughs> in the sequel to it. But I'll t- talk about that, that at another time, I guess. That's for sure. Well, it sounds like a very exciting, fast-moving, uh, lots of twists and turns, and uh, a lot of mind games here. Yeah, there was a lot of mind games. And, and uh, as, as I say, I, because there's so many kind of, I wouldn't say digressions, but as it's going along, Danny's having flashbacks to previous missions he's had in the SAS, you know, he's, right. he's flying over to Ireland, and as he's doing so, his mind is idly going back to some other missions he did. So during the course of the book, there's flashbacks to some special operations stuff, which is pretty fast-moving as well. So we never let people relax for too long during the book, you know, we, we're always in the middle of some sort of action. Russ, tell us how to get your book. Well, you have to, at this point in time, Either tap into iUniverse.com, that's i, small i, universe.com, or it's on uh, Amazon.com. The name, obviously, is the Quigley Alchemy, and obviously my name is Russ McDevitt. It should be available through your local bookstore. They, they should have access to it, whatever your bookstore is. Uh, sure, anyone can order it. Yeah, Noble Downs, Chapters in Canada, right. Indigo, Um they would just have to order it through there. But, uh, yeah, it would be accessible. And it looks good. The book looks absolutely fantastic. I mean, I'm saying that myself, but I'm so pleased with the front. The front kind of epitomizes what it's all about. It's, it's all about uh, picking up a book, getting lost on it, losing yourself. Uh, it's a total switch off, and um, it's got a good ending as well. There's a happy ending in it. We, well, it sounds like a movie. We kill a lot of guys in it, but it's a happy ending. <laughs> it's a happy ending. Way. Yes, with a trail of bodies. A trail of bodies. They deserve it, though. Yeah, of course yeah, they think, do. That's right. That's great. I think XGIs... Get, the, get rid of the bad guys, then, anyway, right? I think some of your XGIs might appreciate it, because Danny's getting these stupid questions, interview questions, you know, when he tries to go get jobs, like, uh, um, tell us about some of you... Tell us about, about an interaction with an individual that you did with success. And Danny was thinking of, uh, well, I killed someone at 500 yards in Basler with a sniper rifle, but he said, I, I just can't say that. So he said, well, I, uh, I terminated someone uh, uh, who was uh, contravening safety rules, and I did it very effectively. And the guy said, oh, that sounds great. That sounds great, yeah. <laughs> so well, the, these XGIs have a hell of a job when they, when they say, well, what have you... Uh, what have you got going for you in terms of getting a job at, uh, at um, Walmart or some of these damn places, you know? Well, Russ, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Yeah. I probably talked too much, but hell, I'm not, not at all. We really enjoyed it. Okay. That was E.J. Russ McDivitt. He That's is it. All the way from Ireland. All the way from Ireland. He is the author of his book, The Quigley Alchemy. 
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.